Today's teaching text comes from Galatians 5, verses 13 to 25. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. It is great to be with you again, uh, be it virtually. Uh, we are in a series where we are looking at the uh, essential values, practices and spaces of presence, formation and love uh, in Scripture as it relates to our church in this moment at this time. We are in a critical moment in history and it seems to me that the winds of change are blowing by the Spirit. He is leading us carefully and slowly uh, and sometimes uh, in some agonizing ways towards His kingdom. Um, and so this one is on love and we are hoping to end in a very practical way, which will help uh, walk through at the end. But we're also excited to just announce that we're starting a new series going through the summer that will dive deep into this idea of presence with God. Uh, it's going to be on prayer. So I just encourage you to uh, engage during the summer in, in that conversation. Uh, would you pray with me as, uh, as we start? God, we come again in this world that we find ourselves in and our hearts long for one another. We long to experience you in community. We pray just for our city, for us in this moment, that you would pour out much grace. Come and speak to us this morning. Open our eyes, our hearts, that we might hear what the Spirit has to say to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Carol Anderson is a professor of American, uh, African-American studies at Emory University uh, and was quoted in the Times this week in this way. What kind of nation is this that can be comfortable with the police officer kneeling on someone's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds? 
And when you start asking that question, then all of the kinds of narratives and shibboleths begin to quake. Now, I'm not here to judge how you feel or whether you're comfortable with any of the events that have led us to this moment, but her question raises an important idea. It is worth paying attention to the narratives of our lives and our culture that shakes under the pressure that we are facing. In Hebrews, we see that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so God allows crises, turmoil, disruption of all kinds to shake things in our world to show that they are not of Him. There are some strong worldviews, narratives, mores, shibboleths that are being exposed in our time, in our nation, but more importantly, in our hearts. Things that we believe and assimilate that are not of the kingdom. One old theologian said this, What you think when you think about God is the single most important thing about you. Now, before we get into our text, I want to look very quickly at an angle from the creation narrative in Genesis that will inform the text and this idea of love. So uh, in Genesis, we often make the mistake of asking, more importantly, uh, the, the wrong questions. We ask the how and the what questions through the, the context of Genesis instead of the who and the why questions. And so as we look at the who and the why, we see something about God that will inform our entire worldview, our entire narrative and the narrative that we as the people of God hold on to. So this is what we see when we look at who it is that we encounter in the creation narrative. We see that God, firstly, is pre-existent. Now, what that means is that he creates out of nothing. That he did not have a substance that he formed into something else, but it means that his creation, in essence, is a product of his own substance. He created from himself. Secondly, we see that he is plural. Because he's plural, his creation flows from perfect unity. His, his creation flows from unity in love as the triune God creates. Therefore, all of creation is created from love. Um, oops, dropped the mic. Um, his motive thus is not to complete uh, something that is lacking in him, but his motive for creation, because it's from unity in love, is that it is the overflow of his being that brings us into existence. The third thing we see is that God is powerful. He speaks and he creates. He speaks and he sustains. And the fourth thing that we see is that God is perfect. And everything he creates that flows from his being, he declares over it, it is good. He gives it worth. In some sense, that is worth ship that is that is bestowed upon the creation that reflects him even the one limiting factor that we encounter in genesis where he says do not eat from this tree even that is a representative uh, is representative of his love for us 
It was an act of love because he wanted us to remain attached to the source of life and love and not exchange that source for another source that ultimately disappoints, a source of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. His limitation was a gift of love to us. And perhaps you, like me, need to spend some time reimagining that some of the limitations in our lives are actually given to us, imposed in love. That's sometimes hard to wrestle with. But his creation, his dominion, his government, his commandments, um, though to us seems sometimes restricting, is the overflow of his nature, which is loving. And so we can say that the beginning of our world, the worldview that we hold, the creation narrative, is that God, from perfect, powerful, loving union, creates us. And if we take uh, St. John's conviction about this, that God is love, then we can uh, paraphrase the opening line in Scripture uh, this way. In the beginning, love created. We were birthed from the perfect love that represents the Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Love then our topic today is the overflow of God's nature and therefore is also the overflow of us living in the fullness of our image of being created in His image. And so we look at love from the angle that it was intended from the beginning, from the beginning of time. God's people, uh, Israel, uh, in contrast with every other religion, were never, never supposed to make images of their God. And they did it for two reasons. The first one was because they believed you cannot take a God so enormous, so mighty, so powerful, and reduce Him to an image crafted by the hands of man. But the second reason is more important. The second reason is this. They were not to make images of Him because He had already made images of Himself and placed those images in this temple called creation. And so violating the fact that He already made that would be a grievous sin to the Israelites. See, we were created to share in His nature and His purpose, to share in the who and the why questions right from the beginning of time. And so we can say He created us from love and for love. See, God is saying, as I care for you, for this planet, as I loved you and created you, you must love and in some sense, he calls us to create when he says, um, uh, be fruitful and multiply. There is in Genesis a beginnings of the pattern that we now embrace, even in the New Testament as we see it, of presence, formation, overflowing in love. But we know that through the fall that sin separated us from him. And Adam and Eve hid from him. <laughs> 
And the first thing that happened was shame and separation. Then it distorts the way we see ourselves, the image that we bear of him. And then it also causes us to rule, to govern, to exercise the dominion that he gave us from a place of brokenness. And what ensues as we look throughout the history of mankind is heartbreak, brokenness and sin. We then see, to, to, to fast forward, that this loss of his presence, the loss of his nature in some sense, or distortion of his nature in us, and the loss of the kingdom life that overflows in justice and righteousness, uh, is then mitigated by Jesus who comes and restores those three things. Because we, we have to be able to say that the world is not the way it should be. Jesus comes and shows us how it should be. He says, I am in perfect union with the Father. I am with Him in presence. And we see that in His practices throughout His life. He says, I and the Father are one. He restores union with the Father. He then comes and He represents God perfectly as we see He is the exact representation of the Father. And therefore, He lives without sin. And he opens a way for us to be formed back into the image that we were created to bear. And then the third thing he does is he restores the purpose of mankind. In love, he gives himself up for us because he loves us. Jesus represents and restores this beautiful value of presence, formation and love as we aim to live in the kingdom of God. We, by the power of the Holy Spirit, His very presence, we will join God in the renewal of the person, the church, and the world. That is formation. And it happens all through the transforming love of Jesus. This story, this creation narrative matters. And we have to understand that when we say no to the narrative of God, we inadvertently, sometimes subconsciously, pick up other narratives that we believe, like one that is displayed very, uh, very clearly in our culture right now, that certain races are above others. Here's the problem. Because we do it subconsciously, something needs to disrupt those patterns of thinking for us to become aware of it and for God to break into our hearts. And that is a difficult, difficult process. The place we start in this text <clears throat> is to reckon with the fruit of our lives. And Paul shows two kinds of fruit in an attempt to wake people up to the reality of what their life is sourced from and what their life is producing. Last week, we said uh, that Jesus mentioned that a tree will be known by its fruit. And we evaluate ourselves uh, by our fruit. And we can't simply try to stick on other fruit on a tree, but that the root system, the, the DNA has to be changed. Then Jesus brought a, a way by which we can be fundamentally transformed. In our text today, we see two things highlighted. We see life by the spirit and what that looks like. And we see life by the flesh. Life by the Spirit, in essence, is a life that is connected to God, near God, plugged into God, fueled by relationship with God. Life by the flesh 
is a way of life that is disconnected from the living God. And this passage beautifully contrasts the way of the flesh and the way of the spirit so that we may firstly grow in awareness of what fruit our lives are producing. Now, uh, a quick warning. When you read this text, sometimes we could read, every time we read the Spirit, like the fruit of the Spirit, we we could read it in a utilitarian or, or objectifying kind of way, as if the Spirit is just a method, as if the Spirit is just a pathway. And sometimes it helps me to remind myself by interjecting another phrase that, that, that it's actually talking about God Himself. And so this passage is literally saying this is the fruit of God. Not, not just God's minion or, or, or some method, but, but this is the fruit of a life that is connected to the presence of God. This passage describes intimately uh, the connection that we have with God. And it highlights these two things, that a life, a life inviting God um, into all of our daily walk will look different. We are supposed to look different. And the second thing it does is it highlights that the primary mark, the primary identifying criteria of a life that is plugged into the life of God is love. So let's look. The acts of the flesh, it says, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. It's not an extensive list, but and the like means everything that is like that, that does harm. He says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, we will not experience what life was designed to be like when God is king. Something else has taken the place of authority. In contrast to that, he says life in the spirit, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience or forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. He puts two decisions in front of us. And he says, basically, like in the Old Testament, choose life or choose death. Choose despair or hope. And Jesus, of course, was our perfect example from which we see this distinction. Everywhere Jesus went, he showed the ways in which his life and the life that he brings is distinct from the normative life of the time, even when it opposed the normative religion. Jesus, to use one little example, as uh, he, he went to the temple over, over Passover, he, he finds a, a reality that ought not to be. And the reality he finds is that people of different ethnicities are not allowed to enter into the place of prayer. In other words, connect with their God, which they were designed to do the way that everybody else could. And he found that the wealthy could more readily enter and connect in the place of prayer because they had the means by which they could offer sacrifices and the poor had some measures of obstacles to to overcome. 
And when he sees this discrepancy, he goes, wait a minute, this normative act, this behavioral uh, 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 um, uh, uh, narrative that, that the world and the religion of the day has produced is harming some. And he gets angry. And so he distinguishes himself verbally. He throws over tables and he shows his disdain for a system that breaks some people down and lifts others up. There is a distinction that is seen when the kingdom life breaks into our hearts, where our lives and the way we treat people looks differently. How do we become distinct? How do we live out this distinction? Well, this is it. The primary identifying mark of the church is not winning. Sometimes we live in, in, in this world as if the goal is to win. And if I could just use my own marriage as an example, there are times where Lisa and I, I know it's hard to believe, but we, but we, we, we have arguments. And in those arguments, I really believe in the moment that the best solution is that I would be right. And even if I think I am right, I go down this path of convincing myself that being right is the ultimate. And I get to the other side and I realized even if what I was saying had truth or rightness to it, I still lose and I still harmed my relationship. And so I realized that there is something that is defining our distinctness that is not you are right and you win. It is this, the primary identifying mark is a life of love. This is what the text says, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Here we're given it in a different way. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The defining mark of life uh, in the presence of God when we are plugged into Him is love. Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, all of these things, some interpreters believe, are just descriptions of a life of love. And so love becomes this bucket within which all the fruit of the Spirit then overflows. Jesus says uh, in John 13, he says, uh, remember, this is, this is at the end of his ministry. He comes and he says, a, a, a new commandment I give you. This is after he was betrayed. Judas had just left him saying, okay, I'm out. And Jesus knew what was, Jesus had just called him out. And Jesus says this, love one another as I have loved you. You must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In other words, the distinction, the primary distinction of a life plugged into uh, the, the presence of God is overflowing love. Paul says it in a different way when he speaks through 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, this immaculate picture of, of life in the spirit. And he, he kind of gets to the peak when he says above all. Love. And so we see that love looks like this, laying down your life for one another. Loving your enemy is what Jesus says. And this, this gets to our hearts here because we certainly believe in our world. The goal is to win our enemy, to beat them or win them over. 
And so what shape does this love take on? Well, we see in this text, just a few verses later, it says this. He is now describing this life of love and he says, carry each other's burdens. Carry each other's burdens. Another, another place in this text, it says, serve one another humbly in love. He's describing what love should look like in the midst of the people of God. 1 John 3, St. John says this, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. In this case, the context was that poverty was a real burden in the midst of the people of God. It was, one could say, the biggest burden that the community was facing. And John simply looks at it and, and calls the community to, to love in a way that helps shoulder the biggest burden. Love. Do we recognize the burdens of those around us? Do we recognize the burdens that some among us carry and do we take responsibility for those burdens? This passage could be written differently to us purely because of the context. So give me a bit of creative license for a moment without labeling it heresy. Let me just alter it slightly. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has comfort, status, privilege, power and sees a brother or sister in need of representation, sees them oppressed, sees them voiceless, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. We are concerned about ourselves and we have been called to be concerned about the burdens that others bear. And so he says this, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That is being plugged into the presence of God. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another so that you are not to do whatever you want. Paul is saying this. He's saying, be plugged into the spirit. Your desires will change. The desires of the flesh and spirit are different. And then you can overflow in love just as you were created to do. Walk with God. Have your desires reshaped. And then you can love one another by carrying each other's burdens. We had an, as an essential goal for 2020 in this church that we need to turn outward as a church towards our neighbors in love. That, that was something God really put his finger on. And, and God, through the crises of our world that we have faced in the last few months, has in, in a gracious way somehow given us a mission of love. He has highlighted a way in which we can be the presence of God, His body to our world. And according to John, we can recognize the burdens of those around us and not just recognize them, 
but take action. This call to love is a call to doing. It's a call to acting. It's a call to getting your hands dirty. In fact, it's a call to making mistakes because whenever you're not theorizing but doing, there is a potential for disappointment. There's a potential for, for trying and failing or feeling like failing. Guys, we have to have the faith that if something is worth doing, it is worth doing no matter the risk. And the call to love our city, our nation, our neighbors, the oppressed, the broken, the poor. That call is now upon our shoulders more than ever. Jesus did not leave love as an idea. He locates love in action when he says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Affirming pain and injustice is not enough. Recognizing the burdens that we bear is not enough. We have to do something about it. We have to spill over in action. And so I can't say it better than John himself. Dear friends, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Now, as you consider what that might look like for you, as we can't go into it, I want to end with just a number of questions that would help you meditate upon uh, upon the journey we've come through to help you kind of measure this moment, help us as a church to take stock and then to adjust what we need to for the future in order to live in in the presence, formation and love rhythms. Basic questions we can consider right now is this. How do I live connected with the presence of God? How am I growing to become more like Jesus? How am I showing the love that God first showed me? We can't love unless we understand we have first been loved. When we pay attention to our lives, here are some questions that could help us measure the fruit of our own lives. What are the actual, not simply desired, habits in my life right now? What streams of information, learning, or culture most regularly inform me, fill me? What are the sins, the struggles, distractions, conditions, wounds that are impacting, influencing my life and decisions right now? What are the realities, the opportunities, or the limitations of this season of my life that I must accept. Who are my friends? What is the community that I can actually rely on and share my life with? Who are the people unlike me that I get to be in proximity with, to be shaped? What do I find myself repeatedly thinking about, bothered by, or inspired by? Where can I be a tangible expression of love to my world that God has put me in? On the screen now, there's going to be some more specific questions to consider. And what you'll find at the end is also just that there'll be a link. Uh, it, it will lead you to the practice. It's, it's under our, our kind of growth and formation rhythm. It'll lead you to a practice to dive deeply this summer into these three areas, presence, formation, and love. 
but it is really important that we pause and during the season of quiet, of stillness, not just rush or wait for the fall, but let God meet us in this moment. Let him find us and hunt us down through questions and introspection and let him show himself to us through loving those around us. Let us love one another. Let us love our neighbors and let us love our city. That is the creation call. That is the call of Jesus. And he calls us to that today again. Let me pray. God, you have been faithful. Jesus, you came and displayed the unity with the Father. You came and showed us the image of the invisible God. And you renewed for us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And today we celebrate that. But we also admit that we, we look at our lives and at times we just feel very, very far from that. May you, in your truth and in your grace, come and meet us in our time of need. Lead us onwards. Deepen us in the faith. And help us to love in actions, not just in ideas. We pray this in your name. Amen.